So I don't know about you, but one of the things that frustrates me the most in this life are passwords. You know, we have these passwords that we have to enter in for everything online and everything to do life. And it, you know, it used to be where you just have the one password and you put it in everything and then someone came up with this great idea that you should change those every six months. Uh, and then so now you got to change it. And then someone came up with another idea that some require a capital and a little squiggly thing, some don't. And so you have different ones like that. So if you're like me, I carry around this list of all my passwords. It just keeps getting longer and longer and longer. And if anyone finds that, they got everything anyway. So we're kind of done and there's no point to the password at that point. So I am frustrated by passwords, but not as much as Stefan Thomas is frustrated by passwords. Stefan Thomas is a computer programmer in San Francisco who has two guesses left to find the password into a server they call Iron Key. And in that server of Iron Key, he has 7,200 Bitcoin, which is equivalent of $220 million. So if he doesn't get the next two right, what happens is the hard drive encrypts the Bitcoin so no one can access it. It destroys itself, and he is out $220 million. He says he's tried eight of his most commonly used passwords to no avail. He says he's at a point where he just lays on his bed, thinks about what it could possibly be, then he goes to the computer with a new strategy, and he has found the last eight times it just doesn't work. He says, I'm getting desperate. Two wrong guesses, and he's lost that treasure of $220 million. We are remembering a time when we as a church lost something that was extremely valuable, something that was a treasure. It was a treasure that was worth more than $220 million. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ that tells us how a heart can move from being away from God and apart from God to being fully a disciple of God, heaven-bound, set with your eternity in the hands of Christ. There's nothing more valuable than the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's not a thing that is on this earth that is just earthly. It's an eternal thing. And eternal stakes are at hand. And so it was a time where the church prone to wander just as we sang. We as a church proned and wandered from this amazing gospel truth. And thank God there's a group of people, men and women, who were courageous enough to bring it back. And that's what we're talking about in this series about the Reformation. And I want to give you a brief snapshot of church history. This is very, very simplified. This is very, very uh, crude in some ways, but just to give you a brief snapshot of what we're talking about here. So Jesus ascended to heaven, and the church at that point was established, and they began to stumble in, in immature ways, grow as the very first church. And we see that in the book of Acts and beyond. And that was the Christian church on earth at the time, all the way to 1054. In 1054, there was what was known as the Great Schism, where there, that church broke into two. And then you had in the eastern side of Europe, the Greek Orthodox Church, and you had in the western side of Europe, the Roman Catholic Church. And then we had the Reformation, and out of that Roman Catholic Church came the Protestant denominations that we have today. 
So we're talking about something in our history that happened here. And so what happened was that church wandered from the glorious gospel, as we talked about, in a group of people that God put the Spirit in their heart, brought us back. And that's what we celebrate during this time. And they marked what they brought us back to, which is the gospel, in five Latin terms um, that we are uh, looking at called the glorious gospel. These are the five solas that highlight what the gospel is, each addressing a specific doctrinal wandering. So sometimes people have said, how can, there be, how can it be Scripture alone if there's five of them? Because they're not alone in the sense of there's just one amongst them. They're alone in the sense that they're addressing a doctrinal wandering uh, in that particular area. So each one is addressing something specific and calling it, this is the one thing. So Chris opened up and talked about sola scriptura, how scripture alone is our highest authority. And then last week he talked about uh, faith alone, how the only way we get our sins forgiven is by faith in what Jesus Christ has done. And today I'm going to talk about sola gratia, which is grace alone. And the idea behind sola gratia is that it takes grace from God to save us and get us into heaven, not our works, not our merits, not anything we do. We are saved by grace alone. So I'm going to talk about the particulars of how that emerged next week because sola gratia and sola Christus are linked together. But I want to focus on grace in itself today from the scriptures to help us understand this concept, to help us understand what it means that we're saved by grace. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at the first 10 verses of that chapter. If you are new to the Bible and you need help with it and you have a paper Bible, uh, go past Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, and then you'll get to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 10 are so good, I'm going to read it in its entirety, and then I'm going to break it apart in pieces as we go through this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus." For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. If you look at this passage, it starts in one place and it ends a totally different place. It starts with, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and then it ends with, for we are his workmanship, his masterpiece, 
created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So it starts with you are dead in your sins and ends with you are a masterpiece. Something had to happen to make that change. Something had to take place for that transformation to happen, and what took place was grace. What made that change was grace. It wasn't our own works that we do it. It wasn't us hoping that our good outweighs our bad. It wasn't our merits. It was grace. Grace is what transforms the human heart and grace alone. This is one of the most difficult things to think about because we love to earn it, especially in this Midwestern hardworking culture that we have. We like to bring something to the table. We like to earn what we can earn, but we can't earn grace. It's a strictly a gift from God. And if you're in church and you're saying, I'm kind of bored with this, yeah, yawn, yawn, I heard it all before, beware. Because there's something absolutely beautiful and life-transforming about grace. And we as Christian people never ever want to lose the awe of grace. And if we have, we need to reawaken our hearts or wonder, have we tasted grace in the first place? Because it's that good. When we understand grace, it changes everything. And as the church, we lost that 500 years ago, and now it's been recovered, and thank God, we can understand grace. So what is grace? Grace is not an easy thing to find. There's lots of ways to describe it. It's a free gift that you can't get on your own, and it's a free gift that you can't live without. Here's a definition of grace from a pastor I greatly admire. Grace is mercy, not merit. Grace is getting what you don't deserve from God, acceptance, love, all these things, and not getting what we do deserve from God, which is punishment separated from him because of our sins. Grace is first and foremost about God, his uncoerced initiative to save us and his extravagant demonstration of his love, his care, and his favor. Grace is this thing that God does that originates in the heart of God that pours out upon us, his people, not because we bring something to the table, not because we are going to do good things, not because we are good in of ourselves, but because it's motivated by his heart of who he is, uncoerced, unearned favor. It's the expression of his love, his care, and his favor. We're going to see four truths about grace in this passage, and I want us to take a look. The first truth we see is that we can't live without grace. We can't live without grace. Some of you are saying, yeah, I can. I'm living right now. I'll get to that in a second. We can't live without grace. Look at verses 1 to 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too, Paul says, all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were. We were dead, not alive. No one is born a Christian. 
We are born dead, the Bible says, and then our hearts need to be awakened by God through grace to get to know who He is and to know His Word and to know the gospel. We are dead in Christ. Now, some of you are saying, I'm not dead, I'm quite alive. As I look out, I think some of you look more dead than you realize, <laughs> even though you had an extra hour's sleep tonight, last night. But we have to remember that the Bible speaks of two kinds of death. The Bible speaks of a physical death, and the Bible speaks of a spiritual death. And what these opening verses are saying is that a person, before they've given their life to Jesus Christ, is physically alive, but they're spiritually dead. And when you're dead, you need a resurrection. And the Bible tells us that we are dead until we experience God's grace, we understand the gospel, and he changes our heart and moves us from death to life. Some people have used the example of coming to Jesus Christ and being saved like someone drowning in the water and kind of flailing around and someone in a boat throws a life preserver and they swim to the life preserver and they grab it and the life preserver symbolizes Jesus and you grab Jesus and now you're saved. That's a poor illustration of what the Bible says really happens. Because what the Bible says really happens is that you were dead. You weren't flailing around in the water. You were dead and drowned and you were sinking to the bottom. And Jesus Christ came, and by his grace, not because you could do anything to earn it, not because you could put any action towards it, strictly by his grace, he reached down into the water, grabbed your arm, and pulled you out to bring you to resurrected life. On his action, not your own. That's grace. God chose you and chose to bring you to life. There is a spiritual realm. There is a God. And the message of the Bible and what the men and women of the Reformation recovered was the fact that we encounter God's grace. It changes our hearts. We give our lives to him in repentance, and we are made new. We celebrated it in baptism with Tracy this morning. It's an expression of God's grace that she felt and sensed when she was here worshiping on Christmas Eve. I had the privilege this last Monday evening of speaking in the chapel at New Lisbon Correctional Institution in New Lisbon, Wisconsin. And I had the privilege of baptizing, help baptize six inmates who gave their lives to Jesus Christ. You want to talk about grace? If I could line them up here, if I could line them up here, they would tell you it wasn't anything they did in themselves. It was strictly God's grace that transformed their hearts. You and I are created in God's image, and we cannot find meaning in the things of this world. We will not find ultimate fulfillment in the things of this world. They will always leave us dry and empty. We are made to be in relationship with God, where our lives have God at the center, but we have nothing in ourselves to make that happen. We are spiritually dead and in a desperate place separated from God, unable to do anything. But that's where God steps in. And look what he does at verse 4. Verse 3 ends with, we were by nature children under his wrath, as others were 
in the first two words of verse 4, but God. But God. God saw us in that place of being spiritually dead. God saw us in that place, and there was something that moved in his heart called grace that poured out himself that we could know who he is, but God. The second thing we have to know is we can't get or produce grace on our own. We can't get or produce grace on our own. We were dead. We needed to be revived. You've never seen somebody without a pulse do CPR on themselves, and you never will. It doesn't happen. You need help from outside yourself. Spiritually speaking, we're spiritually dead. We needed somebody to do something for us, and someone did, and that was Jesus Christ. But God, God intervenes when we are spiritually dead, not because we bring anything to the table, not because we earned it and made it happen, because he is so good. That's why he steps in. And we're talking about salvation here, coming from death to life and being made new and becoming a Christian and a follower of Jesus. But the but God fills every part of the Christian life, not just the first part of salvation. It helps us as we travel along after we've given our lives to Jesus Christ. I remember a time in Lisbon, Portugal, my family and I were missionaries there for a couple years, and there was a season there for me that was really, really dark, really, really despairing. It was flat-out depressing. I was under major depression, and I was trying to figure out how am I going to learn this language of this country? How am I going to take that language and translate scripture into it? How am I going to bring people to know who Jesus is? How are we going to do this? And I was looking at particular struggles as a family we were going through, and I was in a really, really dark place. And so I drove, it was all I could to kind of function. I got myself out of bed. I drove our car to my kids' school because I had to pick them up from school. And it was like 3.30 in the afternoon. They went to this international school that was there. And I pulled in the car, and I just sat there as I got there early, and I was just waiting and trying to Ask God if he'd break in. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's not a good place. And so, uh, lo and behold, I stepped out of the car and I started walking, and, and this guy who everyone called the ice cream man was there. And this was a guy who was extremely wealthy. He would give one month every summer to come to this international school, and he would paint, and he would do yard work, and he would just be a handyman around the whole school. He did all sorts of projects, and he was uh, a millionaire, but he would come once month, one month out of the year and do this. And the reason they called him the ice cream man is because he was the top taste tester for Edie's ice cream. Can you imagine what a cool job that would be? His tongue was insured for $3 million. He showed me the paperwork. There was a list of things he was not ever allowed to taste if he wanted to keep his job. And he would come once a month, and he'd work around the school just doing all sorts of stuff, and so he came up to me and said, Dan, we, we met previously, we knew each other. He said, how you doing? Moment of truth, right? Do I just say, I'm fine? I was. That's what I was going to do. That was my plan. But I said to him, do you want to know the truth or do you want me just to say I'm fine? And he said, well, you just told me. And he said, what's going on? And I began to just pour my guts out, everything I was feeling. Just kind of the truck just unloaded, Right? It'd be like if this baptismal popped a hole in the water and just went everywhere. That's just kind of what 
happened. And he sat there and his head was down and he just was listening. He never said a word. He just listened. And then when I got done, he said two words. He said, but God. But God. In that place, in that dark place, in the place where you feel like you can't move on any further, it's in that place that God is real and says, I will move. I will do something. By my grace, I will empower you. By my grace, I will meet you in that place, and I will walk through whatever we have to walk through together. And it is by his grace It takes God to love God. It takes God to follow God. It takes God to live for God. God enters into our spiritually dead hearts and empowers us to live for him by his grace. And it's my prayer across you, church, that this will always be a church. This will always be a place that no matter what your past, no matter what you're carrying around, no matter what weighs you down, when you come in here to Crossview, no matter what, you will always experience this fact that God knows you. And God knows what you are going through. And he loves you with an everlasting love. And he wants to give you something you don't deserve. And that is grace. He doesn't just love you. He likes you. His heart is captivated by who you are. He's drawn to you. And he doesn't love you because you are good. He loves you because he is good. That is grace. We don't bring anything to the table. And I'm so glad that this precious treasure that was lost was found for us in the church today. Number three, we are placed in Jesus Christ by grace. We are placed in Jesus Christ by grace. Grace is a wonderful thing that's free to us, but it's important for us to remember it wasn't free to God. It cost God something. His son had to come to earth who is perfect and then become sin for us and go to a cross. Grace is costly to God but free to us. And God expresses his grace that because of what Jesus did on the cross, when we come and we repent and believe, the perfection that Jesus lived in his life is now covered over us like a robe. And we stand before God in the perfection of Jesus, not in anything we do. And that is the only way we'll spend eternity in heaven. It is the only way we'll get into heaven when we die, is by his grace wrapping ourselves up in the righteousness of Christ that he gives us. The text says three phrases that we have to pay attention to, three phrases that show us what Jesus did. Look at verse 6 and verse 7. He also raised us up with him. Oh, wait, uh, verse 5. He made us alive with Christ, even though we are dead in our trespasses, you are saved by grace. He made us alive in Christ. You're no longer spiritually dead when you give your life to Jesus Christ. You move from death to life. That same spirit that raised Jesus out of the tomb now abides in you, and you have been resurrected. You are alive. Look at 6 and 7. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. He not only made us alive, but he raises us up with him. Picture yourself in a casket spiritually. 
And God saw you. Jesus raises you up out of that casket. That's what we uh, symbolize when we do baptism. God, by his grace, raises us out of our death. And we will never be the same again. From that moment on, we are called to live conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Because of what he did, the only right response in our hearts is to live for him. We don't live for him to earn points. We live for him because it was amazing grace that was so free to our hearts that we gave ourselves to, we've been transformed, and now the only right response is to live for him. Paul put it this way, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This life I now live in the body, I live by faith, meaning trust. I trust in Jesus' work on the cross. I trust in who Jesus is, not in my own abilities to get there. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, empowered by grace. That's how we're supposed to live as Christians. He also says that we are seated with him. He seated us with him in Christ. This means when God comes and we give our lives to Jesus Christ, positionally, he seats us with him in the heavenly realms. It's a place of victory. It's a place of eternal peace. It's a place that will never, ever end. You will live there forever when you die. It will be fulfilled when Christ returns, but positionally it happens now. God, by his grace, does these things. And it can be hard to understand because you say, Dan, I'm not seated with Christ in heaven. I'm right here in Wisconsin Rapids. It's positionally, spiritually, God does this. And when he returns, that's when it's going to happen. It will take place. When you give your life to Jesus, God places you in Christ. And it's hard to understand, but it is more real than you will ever, ever know. When you give your life to Christ, the Holy Spirit now lives inside of you. You no longer have to live trying to please God on your own, in your own strength, in your own behavior. You have the very presence of God living inside of you. And now the rest of the Christian life is learning how to yield more of yourself over to the Holy Spirit inside of you that you live the way he wants to, learning to let him lead, learning to let him submit, not trying to make yourself obey right things. Let the Spirit live within you. You lean into the Holy Spirit. God made us alive in Christ. God raises us up with Christ. God seats us with Christ. And all this is not through our earning, but by His grace. Did you notice that these phrases, made, raised, seated, are in the past tense? As I said, that can be confusing. You're like, what do you mean by that? I, I'm not seated. I'm right here. What this is saying is an amazing truth. That when you give your life to Jesus, God is saying that all these promises are so real, it's as if they have already happened. They're going to take place. They're real. It's as if it already happened. That's why he put it in the past tense. God can be trusted. His grace can be trusted. The moment you believe, the moment you repent of your sin and receive Christ in your life, you are now united with Jesus. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, this means everything Jesus has done and everything Jesus deserves becomes yours. 
Everything Jesus has done, everything that Jesus deserves becomes yours. This is what grace gives you, and this only happens by grace. You are as loved and accepted by God as Jesus' actions deserve. You are loved and accepted by God as Jesus' actions deserve. You are so united with Jesus that you get everything that Jesus deserves, and then you are so united that he got everything you deserve. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That requires damnation and judgment. By a holy God, he has to do it. Jesus came, took our place on the cross, received that judgment and punishment on our behalf. He got what we deserve. Now we get all that he deserves, his righteousness, his perfection. When we give our lives to Christ, that's what happens. And how does that happen? By grace. It's the thing that fuels it. If you have never come to a place where you've given your life to Jesus Christ, where you say, I want to live for you. I no longer want to live in my own strength. I no longer want to try to, I'm exhausted by trying to do more good than bad. I'm exhausted trying to pay for my own sinful record. God's giving you an amazing offer right now. And all you have to do is come to him and say, God, forgive me for my sin. I repent. I want to turn from my life and live for you. The Bible says all you have to do is repent and believe. And the believe isn't just the, yeah, I believe Jesus exists. It's believing with your whole life, giving him everything, saying, I'm going to follow you all my days. And when you do that, you are saved by grace. And all this is given to you. And the last thing that happens is we become what God intended because of that grace. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. See, that's where the good works come in. After we've been saved, now we walk in the things that he prepared for us, it says, ahead of time to do. God saw us dead. He had a plan for how we're going to mirror out his grace. He had to save us. So by his grace, he saves us. Now we walk out the callings and the plans that he established before we were even saved. That's grace. It changes your life. You are a new creation. It says you are his workmanship. The New Living Translation says you are his masterpiece. The original Greek language is the word poema. It's where we get the word poem. You are God's poem after you've given your life to Christ. And what God is doing is God is recreating us. He, as he's doing that, he is writing what he is like through us. And we display that as the masterpieces he made us and redeemed us to be. What an amazing thought. He is painting his recreation in our lives. And you know what the instrument is that he uses for that painting? Grace. We will be raised with Christ. Then we start to see others like Christ. Then we live like Christ, empowered by his spirit, and we love like Christ. And none of us are there perfectly yet. So how is grace going to get me from here to there? What do I do now? The secret is in verse 9. And not from works so that no one can boast. James puts it this way. God resists the proud 
but gives grace to the humble. Not only are we saved by grace, placed into Jesus by grace, but grace will lead us home. Grace is what moves us from where we were to where we will be. And the main thing that fosters grace, the main thing that generates grace in our hearts, the main thing that helps us receive God's grace is humility. Humility is key to growing spiritually because as we humble ourselves, we receive more grace. And God carries us onto what God intends us to be. I want to wrap up with this. Monday morning I was reading Romans chapter 5 in the New Living Translation. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but sometimes when I'll read a verse, it's almost like God's hand comes out of the book, wraps around my neck, and grabs me by the throat and pulls me down into it. And I can't let it go. And that happened with this verse this week as I was reading it says, but God's free gift, Jesus Christ, leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of a couple of sins. Doesn't say that, does it? Some of you just woke up. Good morning. <laughs> even though we are guilty of many sins. See, it's easy for us to believe in grace when we say, well, we're not that bad. But when we're really bad and we need grace, there's still more grace than we could ever have. That's who God is. God does this and he pours out his grace even though we are guilty of many sins. I don't know about you, but I'm guilty of many sins and I need a grace that will cover many sins and the grace that God gives is such a grace that covers many, many sins. So where does that leave us today? Can you think of a time where you felt like you failed Jesus the most? Think of a time where you felt like you failed Jesus the most. For many of us, we don't have to think too long. It's right there. It's in front of us all the time. We're always thinking about that. Think about a time where you failed Jesus the most. Jesus was closer to you in that moment than you will ever know. And he was there ready to dispense grace. In that moment, in the worst of the worst of the many sins, Jesus was closer than you could ever imagine. And today, his grace is here to save. Today, his grace is here to forgive. Today, his grace is here to make us new. And today, his grace is here to lead us home. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that if there's areas of our heart that stiff arm your grace, would you, by your grace, pull those down once and for all? And let us be a people that freely receive your grace and allow it to transform our hearts in such a way that the only good, true, right response is then to disperse your grace.
God, open the eyes of our heart to understand this. Take it deeper. We need you to understand you. And we ask that you would move rightly for your glory and your fame. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.